0: Um, good evening, everybody. Hello. Um, thank you to so many of you for squeezing in, and uh, thanks for all devoting your Friday evening um, to tonight's discussion. Um, my name is Harry Burke. I am assistant curator at Artist Space. Um Tonight's discussion, Palestine, BLM, and Boycott in the Arts, is one of a series of public forums occurring as part of Decolonize This Place, a three-month project by MTL Plus on invitation of common practice New York. From September 17th to December 17th, 55 Walker Street has been converted by the Art- Artists Organizer Collective into an action-oriented community space around the issues of degentrification, gentrification indigenous struggle, black liberation, free Palestine, and global wage workers. For the purposes of this project, MTL Plus are holding down the space here, as well as a number of the institutional and programmatic apparatuses of Artist Space. The views and opinions are not necessarily those of Artist Space or members of Common Practice New York. Before handing over to Natasha Dillon of MTL Plus, who will introduce more about the work that has gone into tonight's event and the participating speakers, and introduce the participating speakers, I would like to extend a heartfelt thank you to Common Practice New York, as well as the Friends of Artist Space and the Artist Space Program Fund Artists, as well as all of you here tonight, for your ongoing support. Thank you, and uh, to Natasha.
1: Um, thank you, everyone. Welcome to Decolonize This Place. Uh, before beginning, I just want to acknowledge that this is the work of so many here. So. If people from MTL Plus, could you raise your hand and make yourself visible? Mm -hmm. Kind of high. Mm -hmm. Uh, How many of you here have made banners come to actions and come to, raise your hands. (laughs) Okay, so um, if you haven't got a pamphlet, get your pamphlet. Huge shout out to Carl Goen for working with us um, on this pamphlet. (laughs) Um, before we begin I just uh, want to say that we're uh, having a conversation around Palestine and Black Lives Matter um, but we always want to acknowledge that we're an occupied land and this is uh, occupied will land so just a acknowledgement to that. And uh, a few community agreements um, please be respectful of each other of the space uh, speak in the I not the we's and uh, you know the format is like this but we hope that it's a conversation. That's all. And I'm gonna hand it over to Andrew Ross of Decolonize This Place, as well.
2: Thank you, Natasha. Uh, Warm greetings and welcome to everyone. Um, I'm a member of the MTL Plus uh, team that's holding down this space. Uh, It is an action-oriented space, and although we have public events like this every so often, they're they're not one-off events, they're tied to campaigns and they're supposed to roll into action. So if you want to get plugged in to some of the initiatives that we've started are set in motion already. Uh, every, every Saturday at 1 p.m. we have orientation meeting and then 3 p.m. Uh, we talk about developing an action and actually uh, with respect to this particular topic, uh, there's an organizing meeting tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. for those of you who want to, to get involved. Um, Natasha uh, already acknowledged that we're on occupied Lenape land, and it's particularly important, doesn't go without saying, it's particularly important and relevant for the topic this evening because um, although the event has been sparked by uh, the recent uh, uh, statement or expression of solidarity with Palestinian people on the part of the Movement for Black Lives. Uh, Many of you should also know that uh, Standing Rock in North Dakota has also uh, expressed its solidarity with the BDS campaign, which uh, for those of you who don't know, yes. Those of you who don't know, uh, BDS was launched in 2005 by Palestinian civil society, and it has gone from strength to strength ever since, uh, despite organized and well-funded efforts to sabotage it. So uh, in addition to the uh, Black Lives Matter uh, movement, the, those brave souls out in North Dakota who are um, standing up for indigenous sovereignty, they have uh, insisted that their struggles under settler colonialism do have a lot in common with the struggles of the Palestinian people under the Israeli state's version of settler colonialism. And it's important to remember then that um, whether you're in the Middle East or here in the USA, there are populations that are under the gun. And for those populations, uh, the violence of the state is experienced on a daily basis. And let us also remember that one of the core legitimating claims of the state is its monopoly on violence. Mm-hmm. And when you combine that monopoly on violence with a doctrine of racial supremacy, that's a very toxic combination. In fact, it's probably the most toxic combination known to humans. Um, with that in mind, <laughs> I want to uh, introduce and welcome uh, the speakers for this evening. We're Really, very fortunate to have Robin Kelly here from Southern California. There is no one better equipped in this country or anywhere else uh, to address the topic of the evening, and certainly no one who has the, the political clarity and the depth of acute historical analysis that Robin brings with him. We're equally fortunate to have Jasbir Poor here. Um, mm-hmm. from the- Jasbir is from the tri-state area. Um, I'm, from and, uh, I'm from New Jersey. She is a uh, absolutely uh, fearless and brilliant uh, analyst of an advocate for uh, the Palestinian cause. And then after they both spoken and offered comments, uh, we had a couple of responses from two uh, members of the MTL Plus crew.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: And those would be the, the extraordinary Amin Hussein and, <laughs> and the remarkable Mars Safour. And, <laughs> and both of them are exemplary uh, um, models of the artist as organizer profile that we're really trying to uh, develop here at Decolonize this Space. So, uh, without further ado, I want to give the
4: floor to Robin. Okay. Okay, can you hear me? Okay, I might take this off, um, just... Well, no, actually, you know, if if you can hear me, I just... um... Okay, so let me just begin by a couple of acknowledgments. Uh, One, this is an amazing space, an amazing organizing space, and people doing amazing work. So I just want to acknowledge how exciting this is. And it makes me miss New York, you know, I have to say. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the other thing, just to say, in terms of the space, I have, they're, they're, I have very great memories because across the street, for the musicians, know that the Electric Church was on Walker Street and that there was a jam session place all night long. Some of the greatest musicians, like right across the street, were there. And, um, and I had great times. But let me just begin speaking of history by acknowledging that yesterday was the 60th anniversary of the massacre of 275 Palestinians in Khan Yunis. Uh, that was uh, just uh, November 3rd, 19, um, I mean, yeah, 1956. And nine days after that was the, the repeated action in Rafah uh, where 200 Palestinian, unarmed Palestinians were killed by the IDF And it's significant because, for our discussion, because it was precisely that massacre, the Khan Yunus massacre and the massacre in in Rafah uh, in Gaza, that inspired Malcolm X to write his essay, Zionist Logic. Because he went to, in 1964, he visited Gaza, and he heard people remember that massacre. And I just wanted to acknowledge that and have us sort of think about that, because it was in that piece that he wrote uh, in the Egyptian Gazette, in September uh, 1964, where he concluded that Zionism represented a new form of colonialism, right? Uh, and so, part of what we're going to talk about today, and, I'm, and forgive me because I'm going to be very formal and, and read something because I have 15 minutes, and I want to just get through it rather than just you know what I typically do is just get off topic. Um, and so, what we're going to talk about today is like how about the bridge between black solidarity and the Palestinian struggle and vice versa has been there for a while and why the Movement for Black Lives platform is a new moment and where it might lead us. So let's just begin with the idea of black Palestinian solidarity. Uh, Solidarity is always an aspiration, right? So we have to be clear, it's an aspiration as well as a kind of shorthand for the grounds of solidarity. Uh, But we have to be clear about this because there's never been a time in history when the vast majority of black people supported the right of Palestinian self-determination. It just hasn't, let's be realistic about that. We like to romanticize, never been a time. Um, or when the vast majority of black people criticized Israeli policy, or the vast majority of Palestinians, either in the occupied territories or in 48 Palestine, or living in exile, actively supported black liberation. Okay. And why should we expect anything else? Especially since it could be argued that most African Americans don't support Black liberation. Face it, they don't. So why why should we expect more? Um, and my point is not to disavow Black Palestinian solidarity, but to contextualize it. And and you know all solidarities for that matter. You know, so solidarity is a political stance. It's not a racial imperative. Too often we fall for the trick bag of associating race. Or nationality, which is to say bodies, with particular political positions. It's almost like conflating the policies of the state of Israel with Jews, which is not only inaccurate, but ahistorical and anti Semitic. Um, and this kind of essentialism leads us down some interesting po- political cul de sacs. To cite one example, activists working on Palestinian solidarity have recently got a lot of pushback from so-called black progressives who point to Palestinian anti-black racism as a reason why we should not build solidarity. Now, no solidarity is natural. That's why it's a political imperative. Solidarities are often fragile. They're temporary. uh, They're always forged in struggle. And they're sustained through very hard work. Solidarity can produce internal fracturing within groups, um, sharp disagreements, new alliances, because they're constituted historically in real time, place, and conditions. And no solidarity based on identity of any kind can achieve unanimity. And you know what I mean by that? This is to say, anti-black racism does not produce a united, uniform, unanimous, black, anti-racist response, nor do the depredations of Israeli settler colonialism produce a similarly unified Palestinian response. Differences by class, by tactics, by generation, location, experience can generate ideological divisions, making solidarity among Palestinians and among black people difficult enough. So we should not be surprised to discover Palestinian anti-black racism, or black anti-Arab racism and Islamophobia, um, or reluctance to build alliances between these communities, or what is often the most common response, indifference. So to expect otherwise to ignore the historical context and the political reality. So now now let me just turn to some history, because that's what I do. (laughs) So let's begin with 1948. (laughs) So we know 1948. 1948 is what? It's the year of the founding of Israel. It's the year of the Nakba, or the catastrophe, uh, in the context of an anti-colonial war with Britain. it, a war in which the Haganah and other Jewish commando units ethnically cleansed some 750,000 Palestinians from 380 villages, and the new state of Israel barred the refugee populations from the right to return uh, or reclaim lost land, uh, homes, personal property, and bank accounts. 1948 was the year of the Africana National Party came to power in South Africa, beginning with the implementation of formal apartheid, 1948 was the year of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. 1948 marked a turning point in black resistance to Jim Crow. Uh, First in 1947, Du Bois on behalf of the NAACP and 14 million black people submits a a, a document to the United Nations detailing a a list of grievances against the United States for violating human rights of black people. Um, At the height of the Cold War, this kind of publicity did not play well over the world. Stage, you know, U.S. was trying to prove its superiority as a liberal market democracy, Um, and that's better than socialism. That was a claim they were making, Uh, and this compelled the State Department to support desegregation. You know, and so what is 1948? 1948, the Supreme Court ruled against restrictive covenants. Um, The result, you know, of that was you have the Civil Rights Committee being formed, and what happens in response to that? The, the Southern Democrats break with the Democratic Party and form the States Rights Party or the racist Dixiecrats in 1948 at the same time that Henry Wallace forms a progressive party. So this is kind of the context. And the main point here is that the rise of Dixiecrats whose radicalism fell short of succession launched massive resistance to desegregation in the South. In other words, just as South Africa and Israel are creating a mo- modern state formed based on ethno-nationalism, but doing so in a context of massive struggle, a similar struggle is taking place in the United States. So the grounds of solidarity are there, just in terms of the conditions. Um, so first we need to understand, you know, that black identification with Zionism predates the formation of Israel as a, moder- as a modern ma- nation state. I mean, I guess what I should say, just to preface that, is that when Israel became a state, became a nation, you know, emerged out of this in 1948, most black leaders were celebrating the state of Israel. They were not talking about the Nakba. They were not talking about dispossession. Um, and why is that? I mean, Zionism is connected to the Book of Exodus. The, you know, the idea of Israel is with the Book of Exodus, with Jews coming out of Egypt. Um, it was a narrative that actually spoke to Black emancipation. It was a narrative that we saw uh, during Reconstruction, and we saw uh, in Garveyism, you know, the narrative of, of Zionism of, of freedom through this, uh, the Book of Exodus. Um, given the long-standing identification with Zionism, it shouldn't surprise us that most Black leaders in the Black press welcomed Israel's for formation in 1948. Uh, And and I'm talking about people like A. Philip Randolph and W. E. Du Bois had nothing to say about um, about the Arab dispossession, and I'm not suggesting that most Black intellectuals, activists, and political leaders in 1948, like who defended Zionism in the war, were dupes. Nor were they acting out of some obligatory commitment to the Black Jewish alliance. Rather. With the exception of people like George Schuyler, it was virtually impossible for them to see Israel as a colonial project, specifically as a settler colonial state founded on the subjugation of indigenous peoples. And by indigenous peoples, we're talking about Palestinian Muslims, Christians, Bedouin, Mizrahi Jews, and imported racialized labor. And they did that with the backing of international law. Um, Why is that? Well, the convergence of Israel's Zionist roots which is a nationalist ideology generated partly in opposition to racist, ethnic, religious oppression, but also motivated by this imperative to bring modernization to the so-called backward Arab people, you know, like, we're going you know, to have the ground bloom in, 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 in Israel. Um, and the, the convergence of that in the post-Ottoman reorganization of the region, this put Jewish settlers in con- conflict with British imperialism. So the nationalist and anti-colonial character of Israel's war of independence camouflaged its own colonial project. Secondly, if you think like Aimé Césaire and Hannah Arendt, um, if you think of the Holocaust as a manifestation of colonial violence, then Israel comes into being as a nation identified as victims of colonial r- racist violence forged through an armed insurrection against British imperialism. So it's a narrative that renders invisible the core violence of the Nakba, the myth of Israel's heroic war of liberation against the British convinced even the most anti-colonial intellectuals to link Israel's independence with African independence. And then again, you go back, Israel saw itself as a third world nation until they were finally sort of exposed. <laughs> you know. Um, and at some point, even Israel's uh, ruling party pursued alliances with newly independent African nations. Now, of course, before 1967, there were black critics of Zionism, like Malcolm X I mentioned, who expressed solidarity with uh, dispossessed uh, Palestinians. But the Arab-Israeli war changed everything. It not only enabled a sharper African-American critique of Zionism and the possibilities of solidarity with the PLO, but it produced a sense of betrayal from liberal Zionists, many of whom were supporters of the civil rights movement, who equated criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. In other words, this is not new at all. It really raises up in 67. Liberal Zionists detested any characterization of Israel as a colonial regime, and yet this is exactly what an increasingly radical internationalist and vocal core of activists concluded. Black Panther Party, you know, could talk about that, could talk about you know, um, all kinds of stuff. Let me just say something about SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, because uh, the event that drew the most ire from Liberal Zionists was a publication of Third World Roundup the Palestinian problem, the Palestine problem, test your knowledge. Now, to be fair, there's elements of that statement that was anti-Semitic. You could go back and look at some of the imagery. There's no question about it. Um, and I, and I, would, I would argue that that's the case. That's not all that happened. However, it portrayed the Six-Year War as a war of dispossession. Six-Day War, rather, the, the uh, Arab-Israeli War, as a war of dispossession. Israel was portrayed as a colonial state backed by US imperialism. And Palestinians as victims of racial subjugation, so in other words, black identification with Zionism, as a striving for land and a striving for self-determination, gave way after 1967 to a radical t- critique of Zionism as a former settler colonialism akin to American racism and South African apartheid. And to be fair, we don't have time to go into this, but there are many left Jews who broke with Zionism too after 67, and some who actually became more committed. So let me just, in closing, leap to the present and talk about this as a turning point. So the summer of 2014 was a crucial historical conjunction in which Palestinian black solidarity both deepened and became more complicated. And um, Angela Davis's book, Freedom is a Constant Struggle, I would really suggest that the people um, and, and she identifies that moment, and you know we all lived through that. We all lived and witnessed, whether you know on YouTube or on television, the killings of Eric Garner and Ezell uh, Ford and Kajimia Powell and John Crawford III and Michael Brown, um, and and we all saw how, you know, these killings were immediately linked to Israel's latest war in Gaza. That activists drew connections between Israeli racialized state violence in the name of security and U.S. racialized state executions, and not just in terms of what's happening in Palestine, in terms of drone strikes abroad and the killing of black men and women and transgender people at the hands of the police and the role that Israeli companies and security forces played in arming and training U.S. police departments. Palestinian activists were among the first to issue solidarity statements in support of the protests surrounding the killing Of Eric Garner and Mike Brown. And over the course of the following year, um, young organizers from Ferguson, as well as members of uh, the Movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, as well, Dream Defenders in Florida, they joined delegations to the West Bank. And over 1,100 black activists, artists, scholars signed uh, a black solidarity statement with Palestine endorsing BDS. And that was, it didn't seem like it was a big deal then, but it was a huge deal, you know. Um, that you got 1,100 people, black people, to sign it. And I won't um, repeat what's in that document, but I would suggest check it out. Uh, The document does identify the U.S. aid to Israel in corporate investments in buttressing Israeli apartheid, singling out the massive private security firm G4S, for its complicity in incarcerating thousands of Palestinian political prisoners and hundreds of Black and brown youth held in private juvenile prisons in the US. So these were the political grounds on which the movement for black lives was formed and produced. In other words, that statement didn't come out of nowhere. Um, You really got to understand 2014 as a turning point, August of 2014, um, and what followed. And I'm sure people here have read it. It's incredible. It's ambitious. It lays out six demands that center on ending all forms of violence and injustice endured by black people, redirecting resources from the carceral and military state to education, health, and safety, creating a just democratically controlled economy and securing black political power with a genuinely inclusive democracy. Now you also know that it was precisely its statement on Palestine that threatened to derail the whole public discussion around the entire document. Dozens of publications, media outlets condemn the Movement for Black Lives, for criticizing the occupation, and for doing two things. One, calling it an apartheid state, and two, characterizing the ongoing war in Gaza and the West Bank as genocide. Mm -hmm. Now, we know, and I'm not actually gonna say this, we could talk about it, but the Movement for Black Lives is not the first to argue that Israeli policies meet meet the UN definition of apartheid in the UN definition of genocide. Okay? We could debate that. I'm going to skip over that because I want to come to the close. But we could debate that if you want to. But really, the evidence is pretty clear. They're not the first ones to say that, either. Um, and the arguments they make is, are legitimate. But what's significant about the statement is that they did not back down. They, didn't, they defended the position. They did not move an inch. In the past, People be running thinking they're going to lose their funding, and we shouldn't have said that. And people be fighting each other, and like, I can't believe you wrote genocide. I shouldn't proofread it. You know, that's not what happened. They stood by it, and they did not worry about losing legitimacy or funding, but they stood its ground on principle. And at the same time, the statement generated some soul searching among folks in the left, particularly in Jewish Voice for, for Peace. JVP had a really, I mean, real sort of I wouldn't call it a crisis, it's actually better than that. It's a real struggle over the question of what's their position with regard to the statement. And JVP came out and supported the statement. That's big. And in their debates, they were actually saying, you know what, we actually have to consider Israeli policies, as, gen- policies as, as genocidal. You know, so they made this huge qualitative leap because of their commitment to solidarity. The solidarity is not about just holding the line together, but making a leap together, and rethinking what we think of as a prevailing wisdom. So in the end, black Palestinian solidarity is based on the principle of resisting injustice everywhere, and recognizing that the Zionist logic undergirding the founding and management of the state of Israel is based on racialization and colonial domination. Fighting anti-black racism and all forms of racism is a basic principle of the BDS movement. As it grows in size, strength, and success, we really should expect BDS to continue to be governed by the politics best thumbed up in Dr. Martin Luther King's unfigurable line, injustice anywhere is a threat to, to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, Tied in a single garment of destiny, whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And that's the same as saying, you know, solidarity forever, basically. So thank you.
5: Um,
3: Thank you for having me here, and thank you for coming out. I'm super honored to be here, and there's so many things that Robin said that I would love to talk about, um, and hopefully we'll get to a lot of that in the discussion. I was charged with um, some very specific things to um, ruminate upon, um, specifically the question or the the hypothesis that BDS hasn't taken off in the arts sector. Was the terminology that was used? It seemed very, you know, Cold War, East Germany sector thing. But anyway, um, it was a little confusing to me. And then also, um, why is it easier to organize around BDS in academia? Um, So, uh, as someone who is not an, 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 an and I'm saying that I'm kind of, uh, I would not agree with either of those assessments. So, I'm gonna try to break some of that stuff down as someone who is not in the art sector and someone who is um, an academic. So I wanted to start with some questions, right? Um, It's unclear to me what the art sector means. Um, So what are we talking about when we say artists in the United States are not um, agitating around BDS or organizing around Palestine? Um, If the BDS movement in the United States is highly articulated within institutional contexts, So what are the institutional contexts that matter for the artist sector or for artists um, in, in, the, in general? What are the institutional contexts that quote unquote govern um, the art world? What would the targets be? Um, would, are we talking about associations? Are we talking about museums? Are we talking about art fairs, uh, markets? Are we talking about events, film festivals? Um, Are we talking about galleries, Um, you know, so what is it exactly that needs to be uh, focused upon as a particular site of struggle or site of solidarity? Um, And then I would say, what are the goals of specifically focusing on artists and the BDS movement? Is it to change artistic practice and uh, political culture in the United States? Um, is it to support Palestinian artists in Palestine? Um, which is something I would say BDS, in terms of academic boycott, is not something that it actually does. Um, the academic boycott in uh, US universities really um, is far more transformative for the political cultures, or attempts to be transformative for the political cultures in academe, more so than it actually helps scholars in Palestine navigate Um, academic censorship and academic freedom. So this is an important, and the one exception I would say to that would be the National Women's Studies Association, which passed um, with an 88% vote, um, not a boycott resolution, but a full endorsement of the BDS platform and the three principles of the BDS platform, and along with that, um, stipulated that there had to be uh, some kind of programming set up that would actually support um, Palestinian scholars in their efforts to connect with scholars in the United States and elsewhere. Um, so is, is, are the goals about uh, challenging our artistic, institutional context in the United States? Is it about changing um, the kinds of political and cultural conversations um, that are happening? And then if if there is an understanding um, that this is about um, more than the paucity of US political culture, um, where are Palestinian artists? What kind of work are they doing? Um, what are their conditions of employment and of, of working in Israel 48, in the West Bank, um, in Gaza? And what kinds of solidarity and support would be um, would be helpful, would be uh, available, would be uh, wanted. Um, so these are some of the questions that I, that I wanted to, s- to start with. Why am I asking all these questions? Because from my vantage point, since I have been involved with BDS, um, which I would say is actually quite late, from 2009 on. So the call had already been out for four years. Um, I have been involved with so many artists um, that have been involved in BDS circuits since that time. Um, In particular, in anti-pinkwashing movements and discussions, it's really important to remember that the Brand Israel campaign first targeted um, artists and cultural workers. Um, They wanted to fly in artists um, and fund them on these massive trips and show them how vibrant their art scene was. Um, They were very specifically targeted Um, In particular, the cities of Toronto, San Francisco, and New York were targeted, and their film festivals were targeted um, in terms of sponsoring artists to participate in these film festivals and also funding these film festivals as well. Um, One of the earliest successful anti-pinkwashing campaigns was um, the boycott against Frameline in San Francisco. Um, where there was a demand to reject funding from the Israeli consulate. And since it was not met by Frameline, all of these artists pulled their films um, from the festival, right? The Frameline Festival being an annual LGBT festival in San Francisco. Um, This also then led... To subsequent boycott of the uh, Toronto International Film Festival by filmmaker John Grayson um, because one year they were having a spotlight on Israel and he refused to show his film uh, when they refused to cancel the spotlight um, which then led to a number of other withdrawals um, from other people who had submissions accepted and then led to the queer Palestinian Film Festival um, in Toronto yearly now, which is uh, which started actually by uh, films that were uh, screened and projected onto art institutions in Toronto on the sides of the buildings uh, during the summer at night. Um, so, so I it seems to me that there are um, that there are uh, you know continuing with goals. Are, uh, are the are the goals of this about organizing as artists, um, are, are organizing as art institutions or organizations? Um, is it about getting more artists uh, involved in BDS solidarity spaces um, because there are a lot around in different spaces, right? Um, is it about encouraging more artistic production about Palestine? Um, there's certainly been a kind, I would say, a kind of parallel. Um, Movement in in academic scholarship where there are more and more scholars turning to Palestine not necessarily as The work that one does but informing the work that they do or the kinds of um, Comparative and historical analyses that start bringing Palestine Deeper into the question of for example what American studies is right this was one of the big projects the intellectual uh, movements that had to happen at the American Studies Association was to convince everyone that Israel was part of the story of the United States, right? Um, uh, do we want to encourage networks between artists here and those in Palestine? Uh, and again, is there a kind of support network for Palestinian artists that seems that, that could uh, come of all of this? Um, so I'm going to tell two stories of organizing. That, that I have been involved with. So first is the pinkwashing story, um, and the second is the American Studies Association story that um, Robin was also actually more centrally involved in. But um, and 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 kind of flag the things that could be useful um, for other solidarity stories to emerge. Um, so artists actually led uh, the anti-pinkwashing. Movement in a way, or solidarity, um, the emergence of solidarity networks. Um, it was largely L. Flanders and John Grayson in Toronto. I'm going to appropriate Toronto as United States for just a moment. Um, let's just let's just pretend. Let's just wish. Um, uh, but uh, so and you know, and, and it's a, of course it's a different context because the Canadian government provides an actually really legitimate support. To, to artists in ways that they just don't in the United States. So these are some of the insta- you know, the, the kind of structural constraints, of course. Um, uh, the language of pink washing um, is already, when, when we start talking about art washing, Um, anti-gentrification movements, um, in terms of galleries or whitewashing, these languages are already intimately connected. So if your communities are having these conversations about artwashing and whitewashing, it's not that the logic of pinkwashing is already embedded in that. And so that leap to BDS is not that far off, right? These are linked lexicons. They're shared logics. They can be usefully connected. Um, Sarah Schulman, uh, was one of the main um, mobilizers in, in the United States. She organized a queer Palestinian tour. Um, there were a group of queer Palestinians that wound up doing an incredible amount of outreach to progressive queer organizations all over the United States. Um, after that, and, and this was really about who are the allies that we haven't had a conversation with yet? Like who are the potential? Where, how do we grow solidarity, right? Um, Robin was more eloquent about solidarity is not natural, so how do we feed it? Um, how do we make it, envision it for people? Um, then there was a, a LGBT delegation. Um, the first, and I think only, and I I really hope only, LGBT delegation, um, where there were 16 homosexuals on a bus for eight days. It was. Uh, a bad joke <laughs> it was the beginning of a bad joke um, but it was it was um, it was something that was this was in two thousand twelve so this was almost five years ago now in January two thousand and twelve and this was an almost impossible feat that Sarah spent a year asking at least a hundred "quote unquote" high-profile queers to go onto this delegation, and there were, you know, and then we wound up with 16, right? So there was an inc- there was an incredible amount of resistance and an incredible amount of knocking on doors and having conversations and having these conversations over and over again to get this delegation together. Um, Barbara Hammer was on this delegation. Roya Rostigar was on this delegation. So prominent artists. Um, there was a solidarity statement that came out afterwards. And I think um, delegations are complicated political tools. Um, they are a form of political tourism. and when When, you know, you go on a delegation, you're gonna have the same pictures that I got on my delegation, even though it's an LGBT delegation. Robin was on the American Studies Association delegation. They are complicated tools, but BDS has um, supported and asked for delegations to, to be part of the way in which solidarity bridges can happen. So they are actively promoting delegations as part of um, how people start to understand what is actually happening in the West Bank. Um, what, is, what is Palestine? Um, and in this case, I think delegations actually provide an infrastructural context for the lack of an institutional context, right? So there wasn't any, you know... Um, Anti pink anti-pink washing 101 organization that we could just say, Hello, you know, we're going to keep knocking on your doors. We had to create it. And the delegation was a way of creating an institutional context that we would then be accountable to and for. Um, so, this seems to be one of the issues, right, um, in terms of the artist sectors that institutional context can be vague, um, they can be lacking. Uh, they can be diffuse. they can be numerous, they can be spread out. Um, individuals can really be on their own, in a sense. And I would say the pinkwashing story is parallel to that, that we had to create um, a structural, structural elements to make things cohere. And from there, um, there was this amazing thing, this anti-pinkwashing solidarity movement became a thing, and it was a real thing for... Probably four or five years until it started dissipating, um, and people started moving off into other directions. One of the most successful uh, organizations was Queers United Against Israeli Apartheid um, in Toronto, uh, which has now disbanded because everyone's working on different kinds of BDS and and uh, Black Lives Matters and. Um, indigenous rights uh, movements in conjunction with each other. So when we say that BDS is the floor, not the ceiling, this is, I think, one thing that we mean, that BDS is just the beginning, the kind of introduction to the work in front of us, um, that um, uh, that things start, here's an entry point, um, and so, whatever your entry point is, it is uh, the way, and it's kind of it's the gateway drug, and then you have to kind of move on from there, right? Um, so, pinkwashing and LGBT uh, queer identity was a kind of gateway and entry point for quite some time, um, and then opening for people to then really start learning more. It was really great. So, some things went really well. Um, there were events that were boycotted. There were uh, things like World Pride in uh, Tel Aviv that was challenged, or I think it was in Jerusalem. There are things that went really well. There were things that just that that were immovable. So, for example, the Center for Lesbian and Gay St- uh, this, not the Center the the uh, Lesbian and Gay Community Center in New York City um, refused to host a fundraiser um, for um, the Flotilla that was headed to Gaza. I think this was in the summer of 2011, I want to say. And, there, and, and the donors kicked in, and we had a town hall. But that was immovable, right? So that's an institutional space that we decided not to waste our time on, in some sense. Um, it wasn't a space that uh, was going to take up um, uh, the challenge that everything that they did in the space was political, including. Um, dealing with uh, BDS. So that's a little bit about the anti-pinkwashing um, movement work. The ASA story, uh, Robin also knows a lot about this story. There are just a few things I'll say. First of all, it took years and years and years. So the idea that it's easier to organize in academia, I think is, um, is a, it's a false one in terms of how much foresight and how much planning it took. Um, There was an initial effort to pass um, a boycott resolution that completely failed, um, did not raise any kind of um, uh, conversation or discussion. It was just flat out denied. And I think this was like in 2007 or 2008. Um, Post 9-11, there was an organization called Teachers Against War that formed, that eventually morphed into U.S. the U.S. Academic and Cultural Boycott um, uh, of Israel. And um, U.S. Acme also supports artists. It's not just for academics. So there are any number of artists who um, have signed on to U.S. ACBE's statement. Um, and U.S. Acme provides support. Not just. It's not an academic organization. It provides support to other kinds of organizations, including artistic organizations as well. Uh, there was also um, another high-profile delegation, which Robin was on. Um, this also led to, um, and, I, and I hate to say it, but when you see certain people um, signing up for certain things, um, people who are on the fence or who don't have or want to make the time to educate themselves, they will feel a little better. You know, when Judith Butler said, I'm signing on to this, and again, it was a late signing. It was, I think, 2008 or 2009. It took a while. But there were a lot of queers who were like, "Okay, I don't have to think about this. Judith Butler's doing it. I'm just going to sign this. And I'm sorry to be be a little cynical about this, but there's also that kind of solidarity, which is just like, I don't know, we can make up a a good name for it or something. Um, The pseudo solidarity. But you still need those signatures, right? You still need those people showing up for things, or at least not fighting you, right? so there was also a town hall at ASA. It really mattered, and I was going to suggest maybe there needs to be a town hall with the, China, the Chinatown Arquivate or um, whatever other organizations you want to work with. Maybe this is our town hall, I don't know, but um, the town halls are really important for airing out um, community anxieties, sensibilities, concerns. Um, one thing is that it, Institutions are very idiosyncratic. Um, so one, one suggestion I have is really to mine the idiosync- uh, idiosyncrasies of different institutions. So Rutgers University, where I work, has, um, I don't know how this happened, but somebody four or five years ago decided to hire Sherry Wolf as our union <laughs> <human campaign laughs> organizer. So this was like, I, I, was, on, um, I have, was teaching in Beirut for the year, and I came back, and there was Sherry Wolf working on my campus to, you know, to foment dissent, basically. Her job is to cultivate resistance, and I just thought, I am having the greatest dream. I can't believe this is happening you know, to us. Right, But right now, Rutgers is this unbelievable place to do this kind of work because the union support is amazing. So when I started getting attacked um, by all of these right-wing press and Zionists and the Wall Street Journal. February, the union came out, made the statements, the university administration couldn't say a thing, and that's, that's a place where you can agitate, right? That's where you put your time and energy into. That's the idiosyncrasy of Rutgers. It probably has the strongest union in the country of any academic institution. So we head there, we figure out what to do there, right? Um, NYU is similarly a place that hasn't been rocked by much controversy at all. The UC systems have been awful, right? The UC, um, the California schools have been really, really tough for people. Um, The small liberal arts colleges are terrible because the donor influences are really intense. Vassar is awful, Dartmouth is awful, Bard is awful. These places are, these are places where students are really, really in need of support. But there are also places where they're gonna where the donor influence is so strong um, that it's almost about kind of getting those students out of there and getting them in other places where they can actually have conversations that they need to have. Um, the, the, the last thing I'll say about um, this is that once you become a target, everything starts amping up. So if you want to have these conversations. Um, you have to make something that's a problem, right? And people will come out and start arguing, um, and that's the way to get things going. And I think, I think that's what's happening tonight. I think this forum, for some, has been a problem, and it's getting people out, and it's getting people motivated, and it's going to just keep going from there in terms of continuing a debate and a conversation. Um, the last thing... Oh... The, there's one other point also about the way that academic boycotts work, um, which is about institutions and not individuals. And we've, we have had to be very clear about this over and over again with the ASA. I think for artists, it's, it's more difficult. It actually um, implicates individual work in a much more difficult way. Um, the spaces are scarcer, so it's harder for an artist to, say, pull out a film or pull out of a gallery opening um without support so i would say there needs to be support network from established artists um from people who have leverage and i think that's what sarah shulman l flanders and john grayson um barbara hammer that's what those folks are doing and we need to keep pushing them around that and saying you need to figure out how to make boycott work for us instead of penalizing us, how can a boycott work for, for vulnerable artists instead of penalizing them, right? So that's the question. What are the support systems? There are infrastructural support systems Um, and also kind of like a toolkit, like what happens when you're dealing with backlash. We started putting together toolkits. The first thing I can can say is just don't answer any emails. (laughs) Do not answer any, no matter how upset you are, just don't answer that email, right, that's calling you horrible names and telling you that they're going to stalk you or whatever they're going to say. No. Um, But, you know, one of the things we did that we started doing in academic context was actually supporting Students for Justice in Palestine organizations because they are the most vulnerable. They are being targeted by Canary Mission, um, by Campus Watch. The students are doing the bulk of the work. They need our help. Um, and so there are any number of faculty and staff for justice in Palestine organizations that are now arising at various institutions. So what would a kind of artist equivalent or something in the artist sector equivalent um, look you know, look like? What would that be like? Um, the last thing I wanted to say is slightly uh, kind of uh, tangential to this, but it speaks to the the ways in which we can grow different kinds of solidarity. Um, I am currently finishing a book called The Right to Meme, States of Dability, Capacity, no, Disability, something like that. So (laughs) I should know this. Um, But uh, so the the book really started out with, it really started out as a kind of concern about disability rights platforms and thinking through um, what disability justice organizing would look like. And at this particular moment, it looks precisely like this convergence between Black Lives Matter and pro-Palestinian solidarity work, not just because of genocide, but because of the targeting to injure, to kill, to disable, to debilitate, that is an active policy Um, You've probably been reading about kneecapping campaigns in the West Bank. um, The targeting to maim instead of kill, which is seen as a humanitarian um, act when in actuality it's about keeping people permanently um, imprisoned in a debilitated state, right? Um, These are things that disability rights and pride platforms cannot grasp. They cannot really... Attend to so the people so so two years ago New York City started up again their disability pride marches um, in the summer so there this past year it was July 10th and the people's uh, power assembly marched both years and they marched and so so you have all of these corporate entities. Um, and the UN declaration of uh, support for people with disabilities folks in that march. And then you have the People Powers Assembly with their signage saying um, support the Black Lives movement, um, support the Black Lives Matter movement, um, stop uh, killing black America, Um, police brutality um, kills X number of people in the black community. Uh, black disabled people are 50% of the targets of police shootings. So suddenly you have this whole other obvious and yet not connected element as part of a disability pride march, countering the pride narrative, right? Or at least complicating it. So I think that you know Palestine is next, that next year's disability um, pride march should be a place where we come together with Black Lives Matters folks with, um, with a, a charge about not just Israeli genocide, um, but the active desire to debilitate and disable communities so that they live in a kind of perpetual state of debilitation and deprivation around certain bodily Um, capacities as well as access to basic infrastructure, right? So I just wanted to end with that, that that's what I'm working on as an action, not as a part of a march, but as an action um, with People's Power Assembly um, and also hopefully MTL for next summer. Thank you.
6: Take very little time um, I worked with a lot of people in this space to create this uh, zine it has it begins with uh, writings from uh, Robin Kelly that are relevant that he uh, references at least in partly in his talk the same with just Poir. Um and also uh, you know a specific uh, reference to the right to maim book that's coming out and some excerpts from there as well as um, A piece she wrote in Jadalia in relation to um, a lot of attacks that all of you uh, that are working on BDS kind of face but also you know I just kind of want to put it out there um, you know I'm I'm just I'm coming at this as a Palestinian as well right so I'm putting that in the room and and as an artist and an organizer who is trained in law and who had to deal a lot with um, white supremacy that seemed to cross with Zionism if you wanted to work on Wall Street, um, including uh, you know being asked in uh, interviews whether uh, I support uh, suicide bombings as an opportunity to um, get a job, um, or when I was uh, a lecturer at the Lauterpach Research Center for International Law, uh, lecturing at King's College around self-determination, um, being called in by a deputy director called Daniel Bethlehem who represented Israel after the Janine massacre in early 2000 and asked me since you're talking about self-determination I just want to check in with you and see you know what you're doing you know usually uh, Palestinians get emotional about these things you know so these things but but these things right they're structural and that's what Robin was reminding us earlier when we were just having a chat um, so, what I'm going to do is just kind of show a few slides that a lot of people in this room have been working out. And one thing we joke about, aside from like, thanks, Papa, right, is, um, you know, shout out to Kyle Goen for making this happen. Right. Um, <clears throat> but really, really take a look at this because a lot of love went into this. Um, uh, a couple of just kind of remarks about what was said. I think, you know, and this is again, I'm drawing on personal experience and I'm humbled to be here. Uh, you know, the the night, the Six Day War in 1967 was never a war, right? That was mythology. Right. That was a narrative, that was a construction of a narrative of the little person defeating the big person, right? And Israel always wanted to have that war, but that war, the, you know, the Jordanians withdrew. The Syrians never came. The Iraqis, right? Like, that, that, that whole thing was a joke um, because it was always part of taking, you know, Palestine. And what was interesting about that, and the way I know this is from my father, he said in 1948, Palestinians, uh, they left because they were afraid and they thought they would come back. In 1967, they learned. So my family in the West Bank never left. What they did was they left their home and went under a fig tree. And for two months, when the army was on the main roads, right, they would go in and sneak into the house and make some food and then come back out under the fig tree, right? So there was never a war, and that was part of the mythology of Israel as being a thing. But, you know, times change. So that's just kind of a two cents on there. Um, One of the things about BDS, and I think we wrote this in Hyperallergic, and I think it's relevant to bring up right now before I get to these actions, because we as artists, like the artist cap on for a second, is we think boycotting is about not talking. Boycotting is somehow like not being, not, not the freedom of speech and the freedom of expression is somewhat, we're not, we're not furthering dialogue, right? That's what social practice tells you. That's what creative time tells you. That's what everyone that's giving us grants right now, they tell us like, go have the conversation about the mass displacement that's going on in the Bronx. Right? Uh, get some money. And you, you know, if, you're, if you're black or you're brown, you'll get that money, right? Because you're displacing. <laughs> and, and you're, you're kind of a hot commodity at the moment. But the thing about boycott is that it changes the conversation, yeah, right. right? It shifts the conversation. And I think that's important. We have to have a conversation about justice, not a conversation with communities that we're displacing, just as an example, right? So that's one thing that we said, and again, it's in here. And then I think the second thing that we kind of talk about, and because we're we're interested in talking to our community, and I think this is a town hall, Mm -hmm. at least one to begin with, right? And it has to look this way because we also have to share knowledge. Um, But you know, boycott, and I'll just read this last paragraph. Boycott changes our relationships and practices in the face of multiple and intersecting forms of oppression. Whether one claims to be against racism and white supremacy, patriarchy, colonialism, apartheid, or occupation matters little if we refuse to acknowledge our own complicity in the existence of the injustice. As artists, we should take action in our lives and in our practice to fight that injustice. The conversations we have, the learning and unlearning that ensues in the bonds formed, those are all wins for us. Those are real. Right? It's not a campaign that you win because there's a next campaign. The campaigns are always tactical. The learning and learning is for life, and it's generational. Right? So those are kind of two things that I'm just putting in there in the room. Um, but we, I want to focus on something called BDS is the floor, not the ceiling, and, and imagine these conversations in this context because truth is, is that the art world is really hard to understand. And, and, and money is being moved on a global scale with with our artwork right with our labor and we have no control over and where it goes so the idea of boycott what is a real is a real thing boycott what when you can't eat that's also a real thing but what's most interesting about boycott if we're learning from apartheid South Africa leaving aside the fact that apartheid only brought a neoliberal model where struggle still continues right now black and brown bodies are still being exploited leaving that aside for a second the political, just learning from that example, that was how many years ago. Now we have advanced capitalism. We have modes of financing. We have structures that actually you can't even know what you're boycotting and where the money is coming from. They call it transparency or lack thereof, right? There's no transparency in where the funding is coming from. You can just put a shell in multiple shells and it looks great, and you're like, what am I boycotting? I, I, tell me and I'll boycott, right? if you're at that level. So I think the examples we'll look at is like BDS is the floor, not the ceiling, just like Palestine isn't about a state. Mm -hmm. And we talked about this. It's a metaphor for freedom. It's a metaphor for justice. And the anti-colonial struggle never ended, right? And it's just different forms. And we have to kind of internalize that for a minute. Um, So um, I'm going to stand up just so I can see the screen. Maybe I can take this with me. Oh, do you have a, a mobile mic? I'll be really, I'll be really quick. So, <clears throat> Creative Time. How many people get funding from Creative Time or done projects for Creative Time? One person. Two people, okay. Well, there, three, because three, uh, <laughs> I'm <laughs> hiding. All right, well, you know, Creative Time's all about social practice, right? But this is an important moment. It's not calling out Creative Time, it's just sharing some knowledge. So Creative Time and Pasternak used to be the head of Creative Time, right? And at that same time, Laura Arakowitz used to be uh, head of Global Strategic Something. And Nato Thompson is a curator. So that, they had their summit and we were invited. And uh, Musarrin Collective, a feminist collective, during the uprisings in 2012 withdrew. They tweeted at a bunch of us. And uh, Rebel Diaz from the Bronx withdrew. And then we were wondering, you know, what are we going to do? So we actually had a conversation with Creative Time folks. And they said, you know what? We're not getting any funding from anyone. This whole issue is a misunderstanding. And uh, we're like, all right. So what are you gonna do? It's like, we're gonna actually get to the bottom of this and at the beginning of the summit, we're going to address it. The summit was about inequality. Hyperallergic broke the story. You're looking at the thing we were there presenting. There's a picture in their, in their kind of reporting. And Nato Thompson had promised us that he would tell thousands of people in the room that there was an issue around boycott because people, artists withdrew. And we didn't, Josh McPhee, Michael Rakowitz, a lot of us didn't because we thought that we want to have a conversation. That's what they keep saying. Let's have the the conversation, (laughs) right? But in fact, he got down, and what he said was just like, you got to do what you got to do. That's real, right? So what did we do? We scrapped our presentations, and we actually talked about BDS. We talked about it. And then that was a conversation then. So it's always measured, right? It's not that we wanna cause discord in our community, but we want to frame the conversation. So they promise us they're gonna have a series of conversations, then they give us a commission. So we go to Palestine, we do some stuff about Palestine, we come back, we're still working on stuff, we put out three kind of communiques around Palestine, they get published on Creative Time Reports. And then we see some, uh, Anne Pasternak's husband, doing something at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. We're just like, what's that? So we tweeted that, and then, they, and then it, we found out that they have a whole show happening at the Technion.
7: Um,
6: uh, okay, so Technion University is a crazy spot, right? Like all universities, they produce technology that is either good or bad. In our case, it's mostly bad. So this uh, militarized the drone created the caterpillar that bulldozes houses, right? And the show, Living as Form, curated by Nato Times and Creative Time, was at the Technion University. Are you, I mean, I don't know. Living as Form, right? Social practice, like the, the thing, all right. So we organize, we, we contact them, things happen on Facebook. They say, no, it's, 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 we didn't even know about it, all this thing, it's fine. Uh, we can't take a position on BDS, whatever. So we organized, and, and over you know 100 artists and, and thinkers, including Judith Butler and Gayatri Spivak and Andrew and Nicholas Murray, all of us, right? So that's, and, and people withdrew. And we're like, okay, that's cool. So that, that was the beginning of our kind of engagement with this. So then the, the war broke out. 2014 is no joke, right? That was like a turning point in the relationships here. Lessons learned from Occupy race needs to be at the center of the conversation, not just class, right? Those are real. Um, So we did, as Direct Action Front for Palestine, because we go under a lot of names, uh, did kind of a march on the Brooklyn Bridge, but really kind of what was going on over there is something else, which is a 90 foot (laughs) by 45 foot banner, right, that a lot of amazing folks worked on. Um, and that was kind of after that. On my birthday, we went to Ferguson. We were having conversations. We were just learning. We were tough po- a whole bunch of folks, but then we did this thing, which was like our understanding of how do we visualize solidarity, right? But also banners as not just a banner with a message, but actually a mode of obstruction, of traffic, of capitalism, of all the things. It's a tool. So. Eleven of these banners and then the twelfth one when we breathe we breathe together and that's that one of those banners those two banners are here If there's something serious these banners go out. They're not meant to be on the wall, right? They're just framing our conversation for today Um, And these banners they just went on and just on the edge that's the degree of what we're trying to do here is just like we we debated a lot about how much Palestine should be present on that banner, and the truth is, it just needed a kufiya on the very edge, and not on both sides. We got in. We got. Um, we were coming back from Palestine, and we were part of the Venice Biennale, and then, um, you know, there was the, Isra- the Israel. Uh, I don't know pavilion, right? It's, it, I think it was sovereign and we, re, you know, you have to do the research in this stuff. And the one thing I'll say about boycott, again, is that it's not against individuals, it's against institutions. It's against state institutional funding. But, you know, boycotts are hard. It's saying no. It's saying no, but it's also saying, again, another yes, a different kind of yes, right? So we were invited in this context as Gulf labor, but what we did, that was our banner in the Arsenale. That was our banner. And what we did was we kind of did a handball on it. And then we occupied the Israel pavilion, which by the way, that yellow over there, that you see on the very kind of close right here, they have Gaza, right? So inviting you to make art about killing and oppression isn't what we're talking about. <laughs> it's not, right? And, and that's a good way to say no. But when we talk to the curators, it's like, oh, well, this is political art. No, we're not talking about political art. We're talking about struggle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is where the name of this space comes from. It's an action, it comes from an action. We're not putting up a show, we're not being here just to kind of like, you know let's put up an event and a programming. but we're here to learn and unlearn and have the conversation with it when it matters, with the people that it matters. Not because we're not against different opinions, it's we want the right opinions toward the right shared horizon of liberation. And that's the kind of framing that we're bringing to this. And so when we said decolonize this place, the name of the show was this place. The reason why I said the, I started with a lineup of the Brooklyn Museum is because Anne Pasternak has gone on, right, to be the head of the Brooklyn Museum. And Laura Rakowitz right now has gone on to be the head of the Queens Museum, right? And recently, Angela Davis was speaking after this action at the Brooklyn Museum, right? And, and we know this, but this is what our institutions do to us. So we put this, we did this, we kind of cracked their tag, this place, decolonized this place. And it was by the Decolonial Cultural Front. This was a front and back of a brochure. And in the inside, we talked about two exhibitions. They had, maybe many of the artists here were in the agitprop show. They had Martha Rossler, had many amazing you know, uh, political artists the elite movement, all of these things were covered. And then everything was made miniature though. It was like these struggles were historic. It's like they've been concluded. It's like we've moved on, let's celebrate something, right? Even the Illuminator, right, had a projection this big. I mean, that's, I mean, it's insane. So, and then on that fourth floor, on the next side is, an, is, a, is a show called This Place. This Place, $6 million of funding. We researched every funding. You need to go to decolonize, um, I'm sorry, yes, decolonizethisplace.wordpress.com to see the research we've done on each funder. They're all private. None of them violate BDS, right? Yet they're all somehow Zionist. (laughs) You don't even know where the money is coming from, right? And that's real. So part of, and so what was interesting about this thing is like, Things are happening in the city, BDS is the beginning of a conversation, but the truth is what, what, how we engage, it's an and, and, and. And for us, what was most interesting was connecting displacement in Brooklyn that the Brooklyn Museum is actually actively participating in, where the Board of Trustees were developers, where the community had already protested them, where one of the demands was the developer be removed, doing that legwork and say, you know what? We see you, we see your struggle. And you know what? Have you heard about Palestine? Because there's this show right next to your thing, right? That has a little wall on gentrification because that was the compromise, right? A little wall on gentrification. And right here, they're not, they're actually erasing the Palestinian people indigenous on this land. They've paid Stephen Shore, they've paid Jeff Wall, they paid all these amazing photographers that we study in photography school to go on a tourist trip to Israel, Palestine, that's the only thing they mention, and then come back with tourism shots. So we did direct action. We went in there, we touched their walls, we renamed their stuff, we renamed it back (laughs) to their indigenous names. (laughs) We brought these struggles together And we hurt their brand. And this is the final thing I'll say. We can hurt them. Not because we're interested in harm, but because they need to be on our side. We're not going anywhere. The struggles are here. These institutions that represent us and speak in a specific way need to be accountable, even for the language that they use to us. And that's what this Decolonize This Place is about.
8: Awesome. Uh, so it's kind of like intimidating to speak after such seasoned people. And I'm here like, I have something to say. So I'm going to say it. Um, there you go. Um, actually, in preparation for today, um, I was reading Robin Kelly and Jasper Pouar, Freedom, Dreams, and Terrorist assemblages, as well as Angela Davis's Freedom is a Constant Struggle. Um, and because I thought if I was going to like dress to impress and like sit on this panel with these dope people that I better know what I was talking about. <laughs> um, I felt that I needed to know the who, what, when, where, how, and why of Palestine, the Palestinian, uh, the Palestinian struggle. Um, And at that time, I reflected on Angela Davis's interview with Frank Barat in 2014, where she addresses this fabricated um, assumption that we need to be an expert on an issue in order to stand in solidarity for it. Um, And she actually poses the question of, how do we create windows and doors for people who believe in justice to enter and join the Palestinian solidarity movement? So, after several hours over the past week of reading these insightful works, I kind of took a step back and asked myself, pretty plain and simple, do I stand with Palestine? With hesitation, hell yes. <laughs> um, period, point blank, in the discussion. Um, and I sit there with my fist in the air, got my swag face on, and I'm ready to free Palestine. Like, I'm ready. I don't need to know much more about it. Like, I'm there. Um, and it's really that simple, not to say that it isn't important to gain like, a deeper understanding of the specific history of the Zionist occupation of Palestine, but it is to say that young black Americans should never question uh, the bond between oppressed peoples of color worldwide. We don't need validation from anyone. We don't need validation from white people. We don't need it from our families. We don't need it from our schools, our churches. We don't need it from not one person. And so from here, after doing these readings and these reflections, I think about my brother Amin over here, Papa, if you will. And and I think, uh, and I ask myself, am I free in my black body? And the answer is no. And I think, is my brother free in his brown body? And the answer is still no. And I think, are my people displaced by racist imperialism and settler colonialism? Yes. Are my brother's people displaced by imperialism and settler colonialism? Yes. Am I sick and tired of being sick and tired? Yeah, I'd say so. Is he sick? Yeah, we're all sick and tired of being sick and tired. So then, I don't need validation from anyone we're going through the same thing. We experience it together. We talk about it together. There's no there's nothing else that needs to happen. Like I understand him, he understands me. There's this, there's like some solidarity there. There's some there's some mutual understanding. And to refer back to Angela Davis's question, the window by which we as young black people can enter and join the Palestinian solidarity movement is through this common quest for freedom. The common denominator is struggle, and it doesn't take any sort of special knowledge to know and really believe that. The first step towards bringing down white supremacy is leaving behind its capitalistic racial construction of identity barriers. Not to say that the particulars of our own individual struggles as African-Americans, as Latinos, as indigenous peoples, as women, as queers, as the working class are important, no, nah, not at all. But it is to say that we can't allow geography to get in the way of us seeing the larger picture, or of us realizing that we're all saying, fuck you, to the same damn people. <laughs> <laughs> that is the door we need to walk through as young black people to join the Palestinian solidarity movement. Now, what happens once you walk through that door is all up to you. Um, as a Black queer woman, I have to figure out what I can do with my talents, my resources, and my voice to take action with, uh, to take action in solidarity with pa- Palestine. As an artist, I cannot shy away from directly addressing the Palestinian struggle with my, within my work. As an indebted worker in our capitalist-driven society. I cannot fuck with institutions and regimes that financially support Israel's oppressive hand around my Palestinian brothers and sisters throat. As a human being, I cannot stand idle as people are being violently displaced from their own, yes, I said own, land. It doesn't make sense. So I'll end on this note. We must take action. Palestinians don't need the good intentions and well wishes from the saviors of the West. Fuck that. They need people out there in the streets with them and for them around the world. I've said this to my people here at Decolonize This Place several times and I'll say in this, in this instance, Palestinians don't need allies. Black folks don't need allies. Fuck your ally, we need a warrior boycott, divestment, and sanctions, and free Palestine. Thank you.
2: Thank you for that applause, fabulous, uh, uh, really powerful and high-octane comments from all the speakers this evening so far. Um, the floor is now open. Um, if you want to ask questions, make short statements but not long statements. Please respect everyone's uh, patience and time here. Um, so. Uh, I think my, my, you, you'll you deal with that side of the room, I'll deal with this side of the room. OK, I'm going to give the mic to you. If you could just identify
5: yourself and stand up, please. Uh, hi, my name is Naomi Brussel, and I have been involved with a number of different pro- programs and campaigns in relationship to Palestinian liberation. Um, I wanted to uh, respond particularly to what Jasper was saying about the struggle that happened at the LGBT Center starting in uh, 2011 when they banned us from holding a fundraiser for uh, the US boat to Gaza. Um, What happened was we formed a group called Queers Against Israeli Apartheid in New York City and saying this is a queer group and we should have a right to meet at the center. Uh, The center banned us. They were under pressure from Zionists who said they were going to withdraw funds. And the center leadership, so to speak, didn't know what to do with the situation and just kicked us out. We did not stop the the campaign. The campaign actually went on for two more years. We held meetings in their lobby. We uh, put pressure on various people uh, in the city council, etc including Christine Quinn. Ultimately, uh, two years, almost exactly two years later, Christine Quinn, who was then, if you remember, running for mayor, uh, and didn't want this little problem of the community center to be, it's her district, it was her district, um, to be hanging over her during her mayoralty campaign, made an intervention. It was, and we had uh, scheduled Sarah Schulman to speak at the center. And uh, so it was embarrassing for the people in the center to to have to ban someone who's quite well known from speaking at the center about Palestine. And so uh, uh, Christine Quinn in conjunction with the Jewish Council for Community Relations or the Community Relations Council uh, made a deal. And And she first sent them the agreement. To JCRC, and then we were permitted to go back into the center. So we were there for about a year after that, but we did not give up. So, and there was pressure that came from uh, um, queer uh, groups of color, including uh, the the Lorde Lord Project, uh, Fierce, uh, a number of the groups uh, that did put pressure on the leadership, so-called, of the and the center.
3: Can I, can I just add that those groups, especially Audre Lorde Project and Fierce, have been fighting with the center forever now um, about all sorts of issues. Yeah. So, so, you know, I think a lot of people... So I know that um, Queers Against Israeli Apartheid kept uh, engaging with the center, but a lot of people just came back to Audrey Lord or fierce um, and and certainly um, Muslim and Arab queers were not interested in after that horrible town hall we 're not interested in continuing to try to make space for this conversation and this is the thing about conversation right it 's an extension of the discourse of normalization. It's Mm -hmm. as if we haven't been having this Mm -hmm. conversation Mm -hmm. over Mm -hmm. and over and over again for decades, right? So the anti-normalization policy now and um, the BDS movement is a result of decades and decades of conversation and dialogue. Um, And I think we have to keep remembering and reminding people um, that we don't have to keep having this conversation because it's been going on for so long. (laughs)
8: My name is Christina. Um, Short and sweet, I appreciated the idea of political art as spectacleism versus political struggle. And that being said, um, in terms of current movement work and cultural workers and artists who are trying to find different vehicles to educate and empower, how do we move from this, I guess, corporate commercialization, commodification, all of that, fetishization, of, 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 Struggle, how do we reclaim that um, in, in a way that's authentic and moving towards justice, not profit?
2: Anyone, uh, well, let's take a couple more questions and just cluster them.
9: I want to thank all of you for your input and your passion. Uh, yeah, Robin, i One thing that I I didn't hear you mention it, and I think it it may or may not be historical, and I think you're probably a lot more informed about this than me. But uh, you were talking about the chronology of all the various events of 1948. Uh, Was there a UN vote on whether Israel would become a state?
4: Yeah, there was,
9: and it passed. Correct. Okay, but you, you, you didn't mention that, did you? Oh,
4: no, I, I didn't, I did that. Okay. A bunch of stuff
9: uh, yeah. <laughs> and then additionally, uh, you mentioned 1967, mm-hmm. uh, and more recently that Israel was condemned uh, for possible mm-hmm. war crimes against the, Palest- uh, the Palestinian people. So on one hand, you recognized the UN's ability to make a ruling, but the other one, I think, you're sort of disagreeing with by not mentioning it. Am, am I correct or incorrect? Uh,
4: by not mentioning by by not mentioning the the fact that the UN had had accu- had based well you talking about war crimes which one are you talking about well Well, no, no. well,
9: well both in other words you you mentioned that israel was uh,
4: accused of of war crimes and, yeah i actually never the, said that oh i never said right. that in my talk no oh, oh i, I, I mean not, that, but that's I true i mean you know I, right. i'll say it now right. but no right, right. right. I <laughs> but I actually, did. I actually never right. i never said it but right. it was, well, you know, I, I, th- I think I understand what you're saying about the UN, but. The oh,
9: well, well, no, well I, th- I thought it would be worthwhile yeah. mentioning because that was a, chronolo- right. a chron- of chronolo- chronological importance, wasn't right. it? Right.
4: No, of course, of course. Right. And I apologize. Right. I was trying to dis- to say sort right. of in 15 or 17 right. minutes just certain highlights. Right. So there's a long list of things in the chronology that I didn't include that we could actually, actually talk about. Right. Um, but the one thing to keep in mind with the United Nations is that the United Nations in 1948 was not the United Nations in 1975, right? Oh, great. So, great. And, 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 and right. so the General Assembly versus the Security Council is two different. Whatever, General Assembly could pass right. all kinds of things, but it has no binding right. Um, power. Right, Security. Right, and then the other thing to keep right. in mind about the United Nations, the United Nations ended up emerging, uh, and this is Du, Bo- du Bois' argument that the United Nations, that the United Nations ought to make colonialism a crime against humanity, and they did not. And they did not, so that changed the whole nature of the possibilities. Well, but okay, I mean, let, anyway, we'll, well, we'll, we'll take some let's others. Take another right. Question. Yeah. Okay. Let's take okay. another okay. question. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I, you, I, yeah. I, yeah, I, we'll, we'll
6: take some. We'll, to we'll take just, some others.
2: We'll, we'll lot
10: talk. talk about it. Lots That's of all right. views. That's all right. <laughs> Hi, y'all. I'm Hillary. I actually had a question about the UN too, but I guess I have a backup question. Um, for me, I guess, I guess, almost as, adv- I guess, I'm also kind of asking for advice. How do we navigate those kind of institutional contradictions of like, you know, artists, and it's also like you gotta eat, but then you don't always know fully what you're supporting, and that information is not always transparent. And I guess that came up with me when. Um, Y'all were talking about you know, Angela Davis and then I, I thought about, and I hate to like, uh, but like how she endorsed Hillary Clinton and it made me think about those kind of like, how the radical becomes institutionalized and like kind of perpetuates institutions through kind of like this radical rhetoric, even though, so like how, I guess, how do you navigate those kind of contradictions when you're trying to forge real conversation and do like movement work and then also kind of taking the conversation from like strictly academia, like into our communities um, because, you know, we have a lot of talks and it's kind of like people, like a lot of people kind of like vehemently like agreeing with each other. So it's like, how do we kind of go into to our communities and have these conversations and kind of, you know, deal with the contradictions, I guess. yeah. Oh, thanks.
2: One more. One more question for the panelists
7: to chew over. Um. Hey, my name is uh, Quentin. I'm an artist, performer, and curator around the city. Um, so I guess my question is, uh, like, how often? I remember you mentioned something about like institutions supporting artists. You know, like saying like they support you know radical movements, not just. Academic ones, but also like artist ones. Remember that. (laughs) Uh, Sure. Bet. So you know, let's just pretend right now. Um, So I'm I'm relatively new to this space, like this activism kind of space, and like I'm I'm working with like an organization that kind of like supports in that kind of way. Like they support artists and like collectively like pushing like you know what I'm saying political goals. Mm -hmm you know, in activism sense. Like, how often do you see that kind of embrace of artists? Because artists really do need support, you know what I'm saying? So, like, just help me feel optimistic. Like, how often do y'all see that kind of stuff?
8: Your question is also my question. (laughs) So, (laughs) Um, but I'll talk about the first question, um, which is also kind of my question. The idea of, like, what do you do when you have to survive as an artist? What do you do when you know that y- your, your radical movement work is being reabsorbed by the institution? Or what do you do when rents due and the only way to make that money is by giving your video to a gallery that's actually gentrifying a neighborhood that you're trying to protect? Um, so, like, I totally understand that. And currently, my answer is uh, I don't know <laughs> um, because I'm still in school, which is a privilege. Um, and I myself, not being a native New Yorker, uh, I live in Williamsburg, so that's a privilege. That's me gentrifying that area. and so all I know is that I just have to be aware of all of these right these privileges what is what is my school doing? what's my program doing? what's my institution doing? you know, being in this space like what is artist space doing? what is common practice just really. Buckling down on all of the specifics, because when when all of these answers and specifics are maybe not answers, but the learning and the unlearning is in your head, then all of your actions will be colored by that. I feel, um, and I'm still learning. But the idea that like if it had, if I not if I had not been a decolonized this place, that I couldn't have like, met the people to connect Palestine and the movement for black lives, or connect global wage work and de-gentrification. But now that I'm aware of it, even though I'm still in the position of a young artist that needs money, I can better navigate the world. Like I can better navigate these, these like, very confusing highways and byways of like, white supremacy. So um, that's, that's me.
4: I'll just very quickly, a couple of things. Um, we, we, I, I, didn't, I wasn't really clear about the United Nations issue. I just want to make it clear that I'm not, I wasn't advocating the United Nations. I was simply saying that the, the, specifically, one thing in particular, that was that the um, Declaration of Human Rights it was 1948. That was, you know, and I, was, and I wasn't trying to make a case for or against. We could debate that. But I just want to actually address a couple other things. Because these questions are actually all tied together. The corporatization of struggle. You know what you raise? The, um, the contradictions, uh, in the, how do we go into communities and deal with contradictions, the inter- navigate the institutional contradictions, how do you avoid being absorbed? And I just want to just simply say a couple things that um, in, in 20th and 21st century you know, modern capitalist society, absorption, you know, managed consent, incorporation is way more common than just getting beat down on the head. In other words, the vi- we think of it like the states engaging in violence against us, but that's true. I don't want to deny that. But the response usually is incorporation, is absorption, and it's very, it's, it's not that it's easy work, and that's why Stuart Hall, the late Stuart Hall, had this great line, talked about hegemony is hard work. The work of hegemony is like this constant, constant, you know, one day you you know, like, I I told this this story at a meeting I was at um, one of the convenings in Chicago, and I was saying, what sense does it make to show up at a demonstration with a shirt that says Black Lives Matter made in sweatshops in Guatemala? Right? And this is what happens, and it's so easy, it's so easy to sort of um, not recognize the way absorb and this is why, you know, I mean the point that you were making about how um it, it's about how how much is happening that we can't even see. Right? So I think that we have to always recognize that this is a nature of struggle. Corporatization is exactly what counter what hegemony is all about, what counterinsurgency is all about. Absorb it's not about jailing us. It's you no know, that's part of it, but a big part's about incorporation. And that, you know, and one thing I want to say about the conversations we have in our communities, my experience over the years, and even right now, is that some of the most vibrant commu- uh, discussions we have about these contradictions don't take place in academia. They take place in places like the Bog Center in Detroit. They take place here. Um, in fact, you're creating new communities in, pla- in certain places. They take place in, um, uh, at LA Cannes, downtown Los Angeles, and Skid Row. You know, they take place in South Los Angeles. They take place among people who may not have uh, anything more than a high school degree but are active the the Los Angeles Black Workers Center in Crenshaw. We have a lot of conversations like that with folks, and so they're creating theory we don't we think of them as responding or reacting and that like they're the sort of, but they're creating theory, doing theoretical work of a high level that we're not always in conversation with, and so I think that that there, and creating theory means not to resolve contradictions. You know, I mean, it, people understand better than I do that it's, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Yeah, yeah. This constant struggle, produce, you know, these contradictions are spaces of richness. Where you struggle with them to produce a new synthesis, which itself produces new contradictions. They will never go away, and, um, and I'm saying I'm not, and I'm not quoting Mao or anything, but they will never go away. <laughs> and that's actually that's to our benefit.
6: Can I, can I just add? I
4: think, um,
6: you know, there's a reason why I you know, both Jasper and Rob and, and I, I have some of their readings in my classes, and I think one of them is discourse on colonialism, the intro to that, because I think it's really relevant to this conversation. But we think of, I just want to address as an artist, you know, they tell us we're not smart enough, but in fact, artists have a lot of power. And I think we're we're at a time right now where everyone, all our labor, you know, the reason we're able to be controlled, thirty-six—I don't know—you know how many people, you know, three, 000, uh, police officers in New York City controlling how many million, right? It's through self-policing, mm-hmm. right? It's through the atomization of us, mm-hmm. um, giving us bullshit jobs. The struggle, the biggest—the biggest decision I had to make in my life—and these is what we're talking about. If you're talking about making art, at least that's what I'm talking about. The choices I had to make coming to this country in an American dream is I'm realizing it's bullshit. But then taking responsibility for realizing that I'm making money coming from a poor family and having to say fuck it, right? Because, and because I'm also producing oppression. It's not that I'm Palestinian and then I get a pass, right? It's not that I've been denied back to my homeland last year for making a film as an artist and now I gotta, you know, because that's easy. That's, then they invite me to talk about it. Right? So I, I say that and then I say, Well, what have we been doing? And it's interesting that we're here in artist space, right? So let's think about that. What does that mean? I don't know. This is definitely an institution. So let's let's say it. Let's talk about it. Let's understand. But it's also not shying away from saying this institution not all institutions are bad. What are institutions? We're a reflection of them. We consent to them every day. So it's our responsibility to reimagine our institutions. How can we how can we reimagine artist space? Well, it's not as a project, five of us coming together and saying, here's what artist space should be. No, it's these new formations, right? It's these new formations around a politics of liberation. Right? And that's why these strands matter to us. So then you say, okay, all that is bullshit, it's just talk. We're used to the talk, so then what do you do? Well, we started with Gulf labor, and, and we took actions against the Guggenheim. And we shut them down multiple times. And we made art in the process. You can say that's art, and you can say that's activism. And you'd be like, that's political art, and that's discourse. No, we shut shit down. <laughs> and it looked beautiful. And we felt good. Yeah. Right? And then we say, but now that can easily be commodified. That's over there. What about over here? Right? And that's orientalist, right? Because everyone loves, you know, sticking up for workers, (laughs) brown workers away. So what about over here? And then the question is, like, look at the Brooklyn Museum. Why? Why can they go around displacing people, putting up political art, hiring us to do certain things? And you're just like, now you can say, you know, I got to eat. But honestly, then we got to read A Dry White Season by Andre Brink. We got to understand what struggle is, that it doesn't begin and end with our life, Right, that neoliberalism does all sorts of bullshit to us. That Robin was talking earlier about self-care and how that's bullshit. So let's talk about that. I'm not putting words in your mouth, but uh, I am. But I don't mean to, so I misspoke. But what I'm trying to say is like, one way to think about self-care, and I just learned this from Robin, and, he, and I think people should ask him about it because it's an interesting idea. It's like, self-care is a neoliberal thing. What about revolution and then collective care? Right, and I'm quoting Robin.
3: I wanted wanted to add, I mean, we've we've kind of gone over some of the basics of um, incorporative uh, complicity and control societies, right? Like this is a kind of mapping around discipline and control and what it means to have the prison extended into everyday forms of surveillance, um, that kind of thing. So these are the forms of incorporation that mean that there are no political spaces of purity it's impossible, right? So the, the contradictions are really important. There are places that we learn, there are places that we connect up with other people, and there are places where we are forced to make decisions um, and to stand by them. And the thing that's also really interesting to me, and this is what I learned the first time I went to, um, to the West Bank, is that the, the boycott itself and the occupation itself is full of contradictions. The Palestinians live intensely contradictory lives every day. Um, And these methods of incorporation are massive and subtle, so that there are 100 different Palestinian ID cards and every status is slightly different from the status of the person next to you. Um, And these are ways of Segregating out people, um, but also saying, "Hey, you're included. So what else do you want?" You know. So it's not who's included and who's not, but how are people being included, and what are the costs of those inclusions, and what are the contradictions in those in, uh, in, in of those inclusions? Um, so, so to say to say to yourself, you will never avoid the contradictions. They will be part of the ongoing. Um, formation of solidarity, connections, and struggles, and your own growth as a person in solidarity with these with these other people.
2: Um. Okay, more questions.
11: Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um, thank you all, and thanks to everyone for packing this room tonight. Um, I'm really inspired that we talked about BDS being the floor, not the ceiling, because it still shows that BDS is crucial, that it's really solid ground on which we're standing. And um, I wanted to dig in on that a little bit. When people are talking about BDS globally, that's one thing that's crucial, in talking about very concrete forms of solidarity, BDS here in the United States is something entirely more powerful, though, when you have several billion dollars a year that the United States funds to maintain Israeli apartheid. So when we're talking about solidarity and decolonization not being a metaphor, but a very tangible practice, that means that what we do in this country has a dramatic effect in Israeli apartheid and Israeli occupation being maintained. So I want to dig in a little bit more. In talking about in universities. In addition to cutting ties with Israeli universities, Mm -hmm. um, and again, focusing on institutions and not individuals, that also means welcoming uh, collaborations with Palestinian institutions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rabab Abdelhadi and the San Francisco State University making a partnership with An-Najah University, right? Mm -hmm. Or supporting the right to education tour that Palestinian students make every year. Uh, in neighborhood work, that also means um, not just limiting the BDS struggle um, to to the campus, right? But also trying to figure out in your union, you know, is there a way that you can specifically blockade Israeli goods, as our, our comrades on the West Coast and the Longshore workers have shown, right? Um, Is there a specific way that you can go out into communities um, like in Queens, like in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and connect with uh, Arab and Muslim brothers and sisters and everyone on the gender spectrum to connect with them and ask, what are your concerns? How can we be supportive with each other? Um, And I guess, you know, the very last thing to say is um, when trying to figure out what we're doing here, you know, this space will be in existence until December 17th. Um, But we need to figure out how to stay connected and to be able to amplify the work that we're doing when there are these different moments of possibility. Um, And I'll give two examples. Um, One example is um, that we had someone who was an architect of the broken windows policy who just recently announced his resignation, right? And he stepped down. That doesn't mean the NYPD is going to end with Bill Bratton leaving, but that does mean that it's a possibility to push them and to push broken windows policies that happen all around the world, including in Palestine. The second thing is 2017 is going to be the 70th year anniversary of the Nakba, the catastrophe, right? So what we can be trying to do is connecting here and in all the neighborhoods where we're organizing to try and figure out 2017 making it lit as fuck in talking about the Nakba, right? And in how we're trying to build a response to that and escalating to end Israeli apartheid through our strategic place here. So thank you again, everyone, and let's power up.
12: Hi, my name is uh, Jack Brita. I'm a community organizer in Jackson Heights. I work with a lot of immigrants and people who are just very new to this country, specifically from Muslim-majority countries. Sorry, there's a lot of people trying to pass me right now. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I realized is working with these groups of people is that there isn't a lot of time in their lives to come out and support these type of actions, to come out and support anything that you know is maybe a little to the left, or maybe a little too radical because they're new to this country. There's a lot of people who are afraid. So how are we working, not only for you know, the artists who are obviously also need to survive and need to eat, but these immigrant families who are supporting families here, who are supporting families back home, to include them into these movements and make sure that they're a part of this, too.
2: Any others? Just want to remind people who are, who are leaving that uh, if you want to get involved in organizing around this issue, we're convening a meeting tomorrow evening, 7 o'clock here in this space. Uh, all comers uh, are welcome to share information about organizing around BDS in their sector. And use the hashtag. That... Yeah, use that hashtag up there. The Back there.
12: Thank you so much for all of your amazing presentations, they're very thought-provoking. Uh, this is just a really quick abstract question. Um, I was just wondering if there has been an instance ever
3: in the work that you've done where you've seen the kind of dangers of metaphor occasionally,
12: uh, where Palestine becomes co-opted and applied in various ways that are not actually, in fact, applicable and in danger of creating a kind of internal hegemony
3: uh, a seamless space uh, that then knocks out a lot of the productive tensions that can come from exploring, uh, you know, historical specificity of, of these different struggles. Thanks.
4: Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, um, I I don't know if I can answer. Try to approach all those questions. And this question of 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 um the vulnerability of immigrant working class populations? I think it's a really great question. I, I, I can never, you know, I never make p- like prescriptions, but I can describe things that happen. So at Los Angeles, uh, where I live, um, one of the most uh, vibrant organizations there is the Bus Riders Union. They were formed by the LA Community Strategy Center, and it's an organization that has a very large Immigrant working-class population and it's not that they they didn't come just immediately Some of them came through organizations like Kiwa the Korean, you know workers organization and then some of them a lot of um, Both Central American and other Latino immigrants who are working-class vulnerable come out of movements themselves now the thing is They don't always come out for events, but the the bus riders Union was one of these things where much of the organizing took place on the bus so they're already there, and much of what they were doing was dealing with trans, with transit transit fares. With and then that became, um, uh, you know, moving toward the, the environmental destruction of both the trains and the, the diesel fuel replacement with clean energy. Uh, you know, basically working around these kinds of issues, and that's one thing. And the other thing, which um, one of my favorite organizations. Uh, here in New York um, was Sister to Sister, which is based in in Brooklyn, and you know, they're an amazing organization. We had fundraisers for them when I lived in New York, and one of the things that they were always doing is organizing around what was specific to to their community. That was questions of domestic violence in their neighborhood. So no one was actually going anywhere, and it wasn't like mass actions. It was just simply, how do we get delegations of people to try to reduce domestic violence because um, when we call the police, the police end up deporting people who are re- important for the maintenance of the family. How do we come up with other ways to resolve that? Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying like this is what people should do. I'm just saying these are examples where sometimes just right in people's homes or just getting together just as community to be able to have conversations about like life here, life someplace else. It's amazing what just a conversation with some food does. Not, not as an action, but just being in your house. Um, it's just a beautiful thing. Um, I, I can't speak to the metaphor question. We talk, I, Jasper would talk about that and everyone else. <laughs> um, but I do want to say something about self-care, just to make sure that <laughs> it's clear. Because <laughs> you know, no, it's, it's true. I, I, think, I think of it as a neoliberal model. And this is what I meant by that was that I, the thing that we need to do, which we call self-care, is collective care. Mm-hmm. In other words, what we do is, is caring for ourselves as a community. Because no one who really is in, 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 who's political in this sense does self-care as an individual act. Mm-hmm. It's about caring for each other. Mm-hmm. But once we call it self-care, what we do is we re- relinquish the commons, we relinquish the state, we relinquish any kinds of institutions that we're calling for, That should provide for us. So the next step to self-care is like you know what you don't need doctors or hospitals. You just like you know heal yourself, brother. You know, sister. Just you know, basically do surgery. We don't have to know. So it becomes this sort of thing where we we think of self-care because self-care initially was tied to the self-help movement and to you know inspirational speakers who are basically saying you know what you could do this yourself. And that was my concern about the way it's being used. And it's not the way it's being practiced, but we have to rename it so that we actually continue to think of building the commons as opposed to becoming atomized individuals. And that was, that's what I was trying to get at.
3: You know. So. Just to add to that, it is, it is amazing how many um, uh, having to work very, very, having to work diligently in classrooms to um, wrench the narrative of self-care out of students' um, heads and make them understand. The the narrative usually goes, if I take care of myself, then I can help my community, right? Um, Instead of the other way around, or even instead of, um, you know, what we would think of as like a social model addressing disability, which, which is really about the social conditions being either enabling or debilitating. And the Black Panthers had a model for this. Um, and the Young Lords had a model for this, for community care. Um, and these are the kinds of models and histories that now have been absorbed in you know, the self-help industry, basically, right? So this is, this is an issue. The, the metaphor question is interesting to me. Um, for a while, um, and I, but I, I think that metaphors also circulate. So for a while, um, the big com- the big kind of metaphoric comparison was with South African apartheid, right? Um, and that had a lot of traction for um, for a while until I think about three or four years ago. And um, it was both a way of it was both a way of stenciling, a, a kind of immediately stenciling the stakes of what was happening by saying, look, this was South African apartheid and and now we have to look at Israeli apartheid or look at Israel as an apartheid state. But it was also a way of assuming that people actually cared about South African apartheid at that time, um, which is uh, quite an assumption to make. And then, you know, and that people knew what South African apartheid was, which was another huge assumption to make. So there are, but at the same time, it was politically expedient. It actually drew a lot of people into a certain kind of conversation. So I, I have understood these various, frameworks, the Jim Crow framework, the South African apartheid framework, the pinkwashing and anti-pinkwashing framework, um, now Black Lives Matters, and that kind of connectivity, these forms of connectivity to do certain kinds of political work at certain moments, um, and they become entryways, um, and then may or may not change into other things. But that they help us um, move things uh, in a certain comparative ways, sometimes in, a, in, in terms of a necessary imaginary um, that help people click into. Um, and again, it's in a kind of an immediate stencil, like what are the stakes here? Even though South African apartheid and Israeli apartheid are completely different systems and have completely different geographies. But it took a while before we could just show the maps of Israel and say, you know what? We don't have to compare this to South African apartheid. We just look at what's happening here. With the land. Um, so I think we can say, like, you know, there are, there are kind of strategic essentialisms, to borrow from Guy through mm. Spivak, there are kinds of strategic essentialisms that we mobilize at certain moments that, that have force at certain moments. I,
6: I can just add just two, a few words to the idea of metaphor by saying, you know, on, on the poster, we say decolonization is not a metaphor. And I think that's what we mean about this practice that we're doing here. It's a heavy, heavy work, and it's a, it's a history, and it's a practice, and it's a process, and we don't know exactly what it means, but we're engaged in it and we're taking it on. And I think each one of us must do that. In the context of you know quoting Mahmoud Darwish in Palestine as a metaphor from poetry, I think that's important in that context because as a Palestinian engaged in the struggle for Palestine, I don't feel I'm really engaged for freedom and what that means, right? And if I'm engaged for freedom and what that means, then it doesn't look like a border with a geography and an oppressive government that then looks like any other government, which is what all the Arab uprisings has given the, the Arab uh, folks who, who, who rose up, right? But also the fact that, you know, democracy and freedom are a practice as well, you know, and a responsibility. So those are kind of I don't I don't have a theory behind metaphor, I'm just very cognizant of it. And I feel like one thing I'll say as an organizer, as a person who's engaged in struggle, specificities of the struggle matter and who leads them, mm-hmm. right? Metaphors aside, like that's 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 a must. Mm-hmm. Okay.
8: Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think a lot of what we're talking about has to do with trust. Um, The idea that different people from different struggles can trust other people in other struggles. Um, How does that trust get built? It's it's really a case-by-case specific thing. Um, Within Decolonize This Place, I think, at least in my experience, it's easy to trust because the politics and the community agreements and everything is pretty spelled out. So you come into the space kind of already knowing that, kind of already agreeing with that, knowing that people are going to take time to listen to you and your struggles and your personal story, and with the expectation that you will also listen to and hear them out. Um, but in terms of outside of safe spaces such as these, um, I think, I don't know. I think that trust is, is just something we have to work on, trusting that, that we know what we're talking about. Trusting that we do have a common enemy or a common struggle, um, and trusting that that struggle is going to be the thing that gets us to overcome. So I think that it's really difficult, because you don't want your one cause to get absorbed by another. But at the same time, you need other causes in order for your one cause to be heard. Um, and it yeah, it just goes back to trust.
2: So, uh, in the spirit of community care, uh, we, we, tr- we do try and respect people's time and patience, as I said earlier on, and we're, we've sort of gone a little bit beyond the time we uh, set for ourselves. Um, I wanted, uh, just in finishing, uh, we want to draw your attention to um, uh, a draft of a pledge to resist the art washing of occupation. Uh, it's a uh, it's a living document. It was um, drafted fairly quickly in anticipation and preparation of uh, for this event, and um, it um, it's in your it's in the pamphlet, right? Yeah, it's in the pamphlet, so you can read it there. Uh, take it away, circulate it. There will be follow up. Um, this is just an initial. This is a gateway drug, as uh, <laughs> Jasper. <laughs> memorably put it, Um, again tomorrow evening if you want to come back here. uh, We'll be comparing, sharing strategies for organizing and how to move forward. And um, uh, please mingle part of uh, community formation is the conversations we have after events like this. It's very important. Uh, But before you do that, a big round of applause again for our panelists.